And the reading is from Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth on wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he had him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I had is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word to us. It is light for our path. It is food for our soul. And may it be so for us this morning. Amen. What a gorgeous day. Um, it's a gorgeous Mother's Day. And as Jill mentioned earlier, uh, um, holding Mother's Day on a day on the, a Sunday in Lent is a peculiarly English thing. I think the rest of the world is quite American and uh, staggers Mother's Day and Father's Day so you've got equal spacing between supermarket and department store sales. See? And we, used to, we call Father's Day Might Attend Day in Australia, a bit like calling it Wix Day here. It's the day to buy DIY catalogues. Yeah. 
But I actually like how Mother's Day in, in England and in English-derived cultures uh, uh, have it at this moment because it speaks of something uh, slightly deeper. And uh, the original meaning, you get different variations depending on which Wikipedia page you look at. But I understand that there is some depth in uh, the Mothering Sunday as uh, this marking in this part of the year. This was a day when uh, there would be uh, an opportunity for people to go back to their mother church and to go rediscover their roots. And one would hope that as they went back to their mother church, they would also perhaps see their mother. But it was more about community than it was about making breakfast in bed. It was more about household than it was about nuclear family. It was more about finding yourself in that sense of the collective, at a place of belonging, in the place where you share a name and have some sense of shared identity. It's about that sort of thing before it's about uh, suburban lifestyles and certainly before it's about shopping catalogues. And for most of history, that's actually what family's been about. More of a village than a terrace house, more of a community than the average home with 2.3 children. And in fact, that sense of household and family is a deeply biblical image uh, that we can, as we come to conceive of who God's people have been and who we are in this time and place. Throughout all of biblical history, there's this image where God's people are seen as God's household, from Adam and Eve in the beginning, through to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, through to the people of God being a nation under the care of a messianic king, God's way with his people has always been to invite his wayward children home, come home. The gospel is like an all-encompassing Mothering Sunday, an invitation to return to our roots that are in God our Maker, a welcome to sit at the family table. And in fact, if you remember, that if, you, if anyone's old enough to remember the words of the old revival song, it's not, it's not gender inclusive language, I'm sorry, but the song that goes, God and man at table are sat down. I'm looking at Paul because he's an old revivalist. I'm uh, looking at Becca. Don't know that one. It has this wonderful verse where it says, publicans and harlots also here. And I know some churches wouldn't sing that verse. No, no, no. But now God and man at table are sat down. And certainly we see that image in Jesus, don't we? Uh, he comes almost as the head of a household. He calls his disciples to follow him, not as subjects, but he says, I now call you friends and brothers. And St. Paul, in that great chapter of hope in Romans 8, would have us look more like Jesus so that he might be the eldest brother, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The gospel invitation is, come on home. Come to your family, come to the household of God, and belong here. And as we approach Holy Week, as we think about things like the Last Supper and all that Jesus did as firstborn son, taking responsibility for his family, 
it's worth dwelling on how we make that real even in this room and in this community. And how we make that real when we gather around a literal table as God's household here. How does this table inform the essence of who we are? Now, this is a slight aside, but I want us to perhaps think about this. Can I, can I confess something to you? Three and a half years ago, Jill and I uh, were welcomed into this community and I had the privilege of standing for the first time behind the communion table, and it was at St Stephen's, it wasn't here, but it was still our table, and I was struck by a wondering. Like all newcomers, I wondered what was expected of me in that moment, with bread and wine in front of me and in front of everybody else. And in some churches, that's obvious. In some churches, communion is clearly a form of proclamation. It's a conceptual embracing of truth. By obeying Jesus' command to break this bread and drink this wine, to share it, we proclaim Christ's death until he returns. It's literally evangelistic. We proclaim the gospel. In other churches, communion is the exercise of a great mystery. Like the priests in the temple of old, we make real the past works of God in the present, in the here and now, such that we eat and drink Christ himself and he touches the world in our midst at this table. And so we do this as a prophetic act, a physical witness. For others... Communion is a personal, intimate moment, a physical embodiment of a deeper communion of our heart with Christ. We imagine John leaning against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, listening to his heartbeat, and we are moved by that moment. This is a form of physical love and giving and receiving. Sometimes the power of this table is simply in the rhythm of it, Perhaps we see this as a duty, something we should do, but it's certainly a discipline of a table around which we are consistently and persistently reoriented towards God's grace because Christ sits at his head. And the thing is, as I stood behind that table on our first Sunday at St Stephen's, I still didn't know what we thought we were doing. Which one of those? It felt a bit like being at one of those awkward family barbecues where you just sort of, you're there because you're there. And I think each one of us had our own personal reason for being at that table, and I certainly did, but I'm not sure we had a collective sense. How were we doing this as a household and as a family? Now, like I said, this is a bit of an aside, but it's a worthy reflection for Lent. In a post-COVID world, as we are reforming as a community, what is our shared sense of being the household of God? And what communion is for will inform what we think. If God sits at the head of this table of grace to which we are invited, what is our embracing of that in this here and now? It's a question, a literal question, and I'd be very interested to hear you out on that if you've got any thoughts about what our Eucharistic life together is all about. Because it's essential. 
to how we move forward. But that's an aside. What I'm doing is I'm talking about the sense of being God's household and his family. And what I want to do with that is have that with us as we come under God's word in our reading today from Luke 15 and allow God to speak to us through that image as we encounter this really well-known story. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's one of those stories that's so familiar that we've all heard a sermon on it and we all know what it's about. It's a wayward soul come to a point of repentance, someone who runs to the father, who then runs to greet him, who is embraced, and then there's this judgmental older brother at the end. And it's a story that's been rightly the subject of many, many evangelistic sermons. Come to the father, come to the altar, return now to your heavenly father who loves you. Would you like to give your heart to Jesus right now? I see that hand. Brother, thank you. And I say it with a smile because there is a great delight in it and it's a true thing to do. Truly, if we have any doubt about the heart and character of God, this image Jesus uses of a father who is willing to embarrass himself, to run to us in our brokenness and to be reconciled to even me, a sinner, well, what more can you say? That's what it's all about. This is the image of grace and mercy, and it's at the heart of our gospel, and it moves us and strengthens us through every moment of our following Jesus. When it gets hard and when we fail again, this image of God the Father is one that stirs our faith. We can trust a God who has a heart to run towards us. He runs to you. You are his daughter, his son, his beloved. You can trust him. Would you give your heart to Jesus? But perhaps we can allow this image of household to deepen this story. Because what's going on here? The beginning of the chapter, which is a few verses before our reading, gives us the clue. Jesus is with his people. He has come to the house of God, that is the Jewish people. And there, like there has been through much of their history, there is grumbling. Jesus, so to speak, sits at the table with the family of God, and some of them don't like who is included in their number. God's family, for Jesus at least, includes those who are tax collectors and sinners. And as they gather around to listen to Jesus, as it says at the beginning of the chapter, it appears that he welcomes them to the table of the Lord that he is embodying. But others of the household don't like it. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law begin muttering in the same way that the Israelites did in the time of Moses. They were, they were happy to sit at the table of Jesus, so to speak, and to listen to this man, but not if he included the likes of these, these sinners and tax collectors. These people in their mind, and you've got to get this, weren't so much outsiders or foreigners. It would have been honourable to include strangers at the household of God's grace. No, these tax collectors and sinners were to be excluded as people who are once part of us, but who have now betrayed us and let us down. In fact, they're not so much excluded in the sense of holding the door shut, they are rejected from the household. 
They are insiders of worthy of being thrown out of the door, of being shunned, ignored and treated as if dead. Just like the younger son in this story was once dead but is now alive. And so this isn't a story about Jews and non-Jews. This isn't a story that we go out into the, with, the, with to the pagans. This is not a story even about the righteous and the sinners or the Christian and the non-Christian, the inside and the outside. This is an inside story about God's strange family. And in the response to this muttering, Jesus gives this story. And he tells about this younger son who demands his inheritance and then squanders it in wild living. And he's being deliberately provocative in this storytelling. He's also being realistic. Uh, our son Ethan has just come home from university uh, for Easter break and he can tell you of stories about university students who get their taste of freedom and spend their student loans or daddy's wealth on sex, drugs and all manners of other things. But Jesus isn't giving us a lesson in immorality here. His point is relational. This son hasn't just chosen a bad path of naughtiness so let's go out and tell all the naughty people to come back to God. No, he's taken the riches of his father and has treated them as nothing. And in the image of household, all of Jesus' hearers would have known what that meant. Here is a younger son, a person who is a member of God's household, who has received an inheritance of grace and mercy from God who has been blessed with words of truth and the, and the law of Moses. He has been afforded the privilege of being guided by prophets and teachers. He is counted amongst those whom God himself has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he has taken that grace and mercy and that belonging and he has counted it as cheap. The tax collectors and sinners that Jesus was talking to were exactly that. They weren't some hard-done-by bunch of sinners bullied about by religious bigots. Because we often do that, don't we? We elevate the poor people that Jesus talks to as if they are misunderstood rebels that we can pull up the intersectional scale of virtue as if to justify them in some way. Like Jesus is giving them a nod and a wink and saying, yeah, you're a bit of a scoundrel, but I see you, dude. Not like these religious folk. No. Jesus is clear. This younger son has done something heartbreaking. Something that is ugly. His son has fractured the father's heart. And he has no right to bear the father's name. By rights, he should be excluded from the household of God. He himself realises it. It's just that now he wants to return. He wants to go back to his mother house. He wants to go home. And the father leaves the porch and runs to receive him. I thought you were dead, but now you're alive. Take your place again at the table. That's the story. And as the story unfolds, we find this strange conclusion that it was the older son who had all the grace and mercy of God that the younger son had, but also could not fathom its value. And even at the moment when the grace and mercy of the father gets its most fulsome expression, 
the older son excludes himself from the table fellowship of the father because of his hardness of heart. There are two prodigals here and both hold the grace and mercy of God cheap. We know the story. It's about the household of God. It's about God's people. And uh, I don't know what to do with so much, but I do have two questions to bring to it. The first question, and this is not a question to the sinners outside and the pagans we need to convert. This is a question to you and to me. On this mothering Sunday of all days, do you want to go home? Do you long for your roots as one of God's own? To be at home is to belong. It's a household form of belonging. In a household, we, we are fully ourselves, but only in relationship. And only in relationship, especially with the head of the household, God our Father and the older son, Jesus Christ our Lord, the firstborn son. To belong to a household is to, is to surrender something of our autonomy as we choose to participate in community. To be part of a household is to surrender something of our identity as we accept a family name. And God's way is to invite us into his household, which is set by his values, bounded by his boundaries, and enlivened with the spirit at his table. And like the prodigal, none of us deserve to be there or to be here. We are all in our own way. We have squandered the grace of our belonging. But that's not the deciding factor. Rather, like the prodigal, do we yearn for our home in God? Even if we just yearn for a glimpse of the peace we once knew in God's garden. And like the older brother, all of us can take it for granted or make it contingent on God doing what we want. Many of us would walk away from God's household if it's on, not on our terms because we don't know the value of God's more merciful terms. And each of us must res wrestle with these questions. Do we go it alone or do we come back home to God? Do we strive on our terms or do we return to our mother's house? Do we harden our hearts or do we come back home? And each of us individually must contemplate our view of the Father. Do we trust that he would run towards us? And all I can do is bear witness to you that yes, he does. And yes, he has. And we are all the people that he has run towards. Do you want to go home? And the second question is actually a more of a collective question for us together. And that question is this. Do we together want to be God's household? After all, that's what Jesus embodied. It was what the Pharisees were complaining about. And we are called to be like Jesus. This is the calling of the church. We embody in the particular, in the here and now, what is true in heaven. It's what we pray for. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our calling in ourselves, our own hearts, in our families and homes, in our communities, and in this building, and this takes faith, even within our institutions, we are called to manifest the household of God. 
to be a mother church, a source of life to which we, in which we can return to what we long for. We are not here first and foremost as an activist community. We are not here as an enjoyable experience. I am not here for your entertainment. What's the next line? Someone starts singing. Our identity is in the one to whom we belong, not in the things that we do. To quote a classic film, we must not lose sight of what our miracle is for. Our faith is not manifest in striving until we just can't stop, stop, stop. Somebody gets it. Our attempt at being perfect, and it's not in hiding behind walls with the truth that's inside of us. It's about table fellowship, first and foremost, with the author of life. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I don't just turn up here because it's my job. If that was the case, I would have given up my job a long time ago. I just don't have the capacity to sell you some religious product and put on a good show. I don't come to church because it's fun. I don't come to church to do much at all. I turn up because my Lord and Saviour is here and I long for home. I long for a literal taste of it in bread and wine and in the presence of others who will welcome me when I fall and remind me by their own witness and conviction about the heart of the Father whose table we share. That's what this table is for. And so today, as we come to the end of a rather long talk, shall we feast together on this Mothering Sunday? Let this be our mother church today. Let's be at home with the Lord, even in this place, and trust the Holy Spirit to minister to us as we share bread and wine together. So I wonder if we could pray. And we're going to pray first and foremost our confession prayer. And hopefully the kids will come back in and join in the family. Someone wants to tell them. And then we'll share together around this table. Would you pray with me? Should be words. Come, let us return to the Lord and say, Lord our God, in our sin, we have avoided your call. Our love for you is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Have mercy on us, deliver us from judgment, bind up our wounds and revive us. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And in the name of Jesus, may I remind you of the words that Jesus spoke of a father who runs to his lost child and receives that one with grace and assure you that you are counted just as he was. Amen and amen.